Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California, now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. Tonight we are talking about hidden things, secret societies, conspiracies. Joining us by telephone from New York is the author Colin Dickey, who has written interesting books about a lot of our favorite topics, ghosts, flying saucers, and especially the many reasons so many of us are drawn to the supernatural, the occult, the paranormal. His latest in stores next week from Viking Books is called Under the Eye of Power. How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. Colin Dickey, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. This is great. I'm excited about this book. I love the secret histories of of American politics and uh, the revolution and the stories about the French setting it all up as... I'm not sure what the reason was, but there was some reason that you probably are going to answer in this book. What made you turn to this subject after doing the Ghostland book and Unidentified? Right. Yeah. So after Ghostland, I had this idea. I wanted to do a book about conspiracy theories and also cryptids like Bigfoot. Uh, and UFOs, which ties into conspiracy theories. And I started writing this really kind of wild freewheeling book about conspiracy theories of all manner. And then at some point I decided that all I really wanted to do was write about Bigfoot and UFOs. And so I kind of cut two thirds of that book just out and just left it on the ground and, and wrote what ended up being my last book, The Unidentified, which is sort of about our obsession with strange creatures and um, flying saucers and the lost continent of Atlantis. So I had all this material about these sort of weird conspiracy theories and, and I wasn't sure what to do with it. And at some point it sort of clicked to me that a kind of through line through all of them was this idea about the, you know, particularly these this, these secret groups that are kind of working behind the scenes to influence our thought and our actions and our behavior and how we kind of keep coming back to those time and time again, whether or not they're Freemasons or the Illuminati or in kind of more kind of racist ways, you know, the Jews or the Catholics, and then sort of more recently, you know, Satanists and lizard people from outer space. And I, you know, I, so I got kind of very interested in this idea of, of why we, we as a culture kind of keep coming back to imagining that there's this kind of secret cabal out there which is pulling the strings and telling us how to think and how to behave and, and how to believe and, and how we have to sort of fight back from this nefarious group of, of hidden actors. My assumption with conspiracy theories is that there's always truth in them. Anything to do with wars, assassinations, justification for invasions and occupations, uh, anything involving billions or trillions of dollars, there are always people in power who are manipulating the narrative, and it's, it's, a, it's a profession. 
like the story about uh, Saddam's troops yanking the premature babies out of the incubators in a Kuwaiti hospital, mm-hmm. which was you know, one of the, the main points to drum up outrage for the first Gulf War. I remember watching that, you know, it came with, the, oh, he's worse than Hitler and et cetera. And today it's known as a Kuwaiti incubator hoax. And it was one of many pieces of the U.S. government's conspiracy to mislead Americans into supporting that war. It happened again mm-hmm. with George Bush Jr.'s administration when the second Iraq war was falsely justified. So there's real conspiracies with real conspirators in powerful positions. And the Washington media, being part of that same social and economic circle, they nearly always repeat the propaganda word for word until years and years later when the truth comes out, which is a point that you make right at the beginning of your book that I thought was great. This was the part, I think, on page five. Do you mind reading that? Yeah, sure. Of course, there are conspiracy theories, and then there are actual conspiracies. On the surface, it may sound to someone unfamiliar with American history that there's little difference between alleging the Ku Klux Klan was behind JFK's assassination and arguing that the most powerful man in the United States was behind a bumbling, idiotic break-in at the Watergate Hotel. The difference is that over time, one of these theories was repeatedly and thoroughly confirmed, while the other was not. Accordingly, while nearly all conspiracy theories have a degree of plausibility, and many contain at least some small kernel of truth, history suggests that genuine conspiracies have a tendency to unravel almost as soon as someone goes looking into Whistleblowers, deathbed confessions, sworn depositions, petty vengeance, any number of basic human motivations will undermine an act of conspiracy. And the larger a conspiracy supposedly is, the more actors it will require to be successful, which in turn demands a larger and larger sphere of absolute secrecy for the conspirators to remain undetected. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein learned a great deal about Watergate from secretaries and other low-level office workers, people integral to the implementation of Nixon's schemes, but who lacks the ideological dedication of his higher-ups. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It sets the table and in a way that's very clear. Right, and I think I think your point about, about the Bush era, you know, which is something I get into in the, in the later chapters of my book, is a really important one in the sense that the difference the difference I would argue between a kind of like a an actual conspiracy and a conspiracy theory is that one of the things about conspiracy theories is they are imagined as completely totalizing and also 100% successful so when you talk to conspiracy theorists about whatever it is, you know, that quote unquote, the Jews control the media or, you know, whatever, something like that. The, the idea is that the people who are in on it have this very specific plan that they are able to implement flawlessly and without detection. And anything that appears to be sort of against the plan is in fact sort of misdirection or a false flag or something like that. 
when you look at the second invasion of Iraq, uh, Bush Jr., these are the most powerful men in the country. They had at their disposal the greatest military known to human history and, you know, this massive government apparatus. They had the collusion of the media, as you suggest, that you sort of were active dudes in this process. And they screwed it up. You know, like like Iraq was a quagmire. You know, they, the whole idea was a conspiracy so that Cheney and his friends could get easy access to Iraqi oil in perpetuity. And instead, what they got was a mess. And I think that's, again, that's a sort of difference between the way actual conspiracies work, which, you know, even with the, you know, best by which I mean worst intentions, um, they go haywire because history is full of chaos and unexpected developments and just sort of randomness. Whereas a conspiracy theory is always kind of imagined to be perfectly successful in, in all of its implementation. A narrative, a sort of a super narrative that can involve anything. And you mentioned Kennedy in that part that you just read. The U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1979, they did conclude that he was assassinated as the result of a conspiracy. And mm -hmm. they even went with the grassy knoll second shooter as the official conclusion, although they didn't name anyone and they made sure to say the CIA and et cetera had nothing to do with it. That, that we can tell you. And then last week, the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before, suppresses the release of what should be public information about that assassination 60 years ago in November. I mean, how can that not keep the most complex conspiracy theory alive when you do see actual examples like that? Right. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I did when I started up this book, I mentioned I started with your usual suspects, with, with the Freemasons and the Illuminati, and the satanic panic of the 1980s. And I was sort of trying to figure out a kind of grouping that would sort of make sense of the scope of the book. And I, I kind of hit upon this basic formulation that I was looking at a group of conspirators acting in secret, either fictitious or real, in an attempt to undermine American democracy or break American laws. And that was kind of what I decided was gonna be the focus of the book. And, and as soon as I kind of had that as my formulation of it, you know, as meant the Freemasons or, or the Jews or hidden Satanists in the 1980s, but it also, it also became very quickly apparent to me that that definition would also fit the FBI and the CIA, who way more so than these supposedly media controlling Jews or whatever, are the actual people who worked in secret in a coordinated effort to undermine American civil liberties, break American laws, and, and harm American citizens. And, you know, we got that with the COINTELPRO break-in, you know, we got that with the church committee. So we, you know, we have sort of documentary evidence of that, and they are perhaps the best example of this thing that I think most Americans, particularly on the right, although they kind of don't want to admit it, are, are most terrified of. So I, I think you're, you're right that they, they kind of bear out the worst hallucinations of, of the sort of conspiracy theorist mind while often not even being sort of recognized as being the kind of thing that conspiracy theorists are kind of most exercised about. When I was growing up in New Orleans, we had, well, we had fantastic radio stations of all kinds, you know, soul and the pop stations were terrific. And there was a call-in show, I remember, 
uh, on a, a black talk news station, a community station. The show had a black host uh, who had a very deep, wonderful voice. Everything sounded deep and sinister when he was talking about it. And all these callers from, from the city, and I'd listen late at night. It's where I first heard about Thomas Jefferson fathering all these children with the enslaved women that he kept. And the Nazi mad scientist Tuskegee's syphilis experiment on hundreds of poor black men. Forty years that went on. And J. Edgar Hoover recording Martin Luther King Jr. having sex. All this stuff that you didn't hear anywhere else at the time in the 1970s, early 70s. And then over time, all these conspiracy theories were proven true. And so that in particular taught me, pay attention to the conspiracy theories coming out of the black community. Because they're so far ahead of official truth. And... And it really backs up this idea that the official story is is fake and it's to keep people oppressed. So I just got your book manuscript this morning, so I've, I've skimmed more than I've read. But I was glad to see a number of references to uh, conspiracies against black people in particular in your book and how secret societies are sometimes used by oppressed and marginalized communities as a sort of taking back of control of, of their lives. And I'm wondering how you see these traditions of often real conspiracies in oppressed communities, which would also include gay men with AIDS in the early 1980s, uh, mm-hmm. or immigrant communities throughout the centuries, the Irish, the Sicilians, etc., so there's a great folklorist, I think she's at UCLA, and I, I cite her in the book a couple of times, her name is Patricia Turner, uh, who writes about urban legends in the black community that I found, I found really helpful. And you're right, you're absolutely right that in many cases, things that seemed absolutely fantastical, absolutely beyond belief turned out to be very true, whether Tuskegee or the revelations about Martin Luther King or the assassination of Fred Hampton, you know, all those things. But one of the other things that that Patricia Turner writes about is things that have been very prevalent in black communities, but also are not true. That Church's Chicken had a sterilizing agent that was uh, specifically targeted to go after young black men and the black population. So, you know, and I think she she's she's very good. And I, I hope I was able to do her justice in, in sort of, you know, citing her and bringing her into my own book, but of kind of parsing, there are, again, there are conspiracies that turn out to be to be literally true. There are conspiracy theories that are, are literally false, but nevertheless offer a kind of narrative and articulation and a, a way of making sense of other things that may be sort of more nebulous and more kind of harder to put your finger on. Alleging that uh, the KKK secretly owns the tobacco companies, and again, it's using tobacco as a means of poisoning and disenfranchising the black community. That is that is not literally true, but that is a narrative that, that offers a kind of good and evil scheme to make sense of the way that tobacco companies are sort of simply rapacious capitalists who are happy to take money however they can get it without any regard for the, their consumer. A lot of the way the conspiracy theories kind of take root and flower is because they offer 
uh, a simplified good and evil narrative that makes sense of a chaotic and random world. And, and the guy who, who actually coins the term conspiracy theory, Karl Popper, has this great quote, which I, I use as an aircraft for, for the book, which is the conspiracy theory of society happens when you get rid of God and ask what is in his place. To go back to that earlier conversation we were having about the Bush administration versus the Illuminati, the idea that the Illuminati are perfectly capable of enacting their nefarious schemes and everything that happens as part of this hidden but perfectly realized plan, that is not an understanding of history so much as on some level kind of theological perspective, a belief that there is such a thing as sort of perfect causality which most modern historians will tell you just does not does not exist and isn't true but a, a conspiracy theorist which is different from somebody i think who understands that there are actual conspiracies and and these are worth ferreting out and investigating and unearthing but a conspiracy theorist i think is someone for whom the the allure is the idea of, of the perfectly enacted scheme and the idea that that even if it's malevolent, it's still basically a theology. Right, right. It's uh, it's part of God's plan. It's as God wills it. Exactly. And, yeah. And God works in mysterious ways, so it doesn't yeah. always make sense. But there's a plan behind it all. What is yeah. a real secret society that you write about here that a non-powerful group has used for? interesting purposes. One of the most, again, when I sort of made my, my taxonomy, one of the things that I was kind of really interested to realize sort of fit the scheme and was, was really fascinating with exploring was the Underground Railroad. Again, this is, a, this is a network group that were working in secret in order to break American laws, in this case, the Fugitive Slave Law. And I think of that as I was really excited to sort of put that in the book as a way of sort of of kind of complicating this idea that secret societies are nefarious, that breaking American laws is always unjust. I think of that as an example of kind of complicating this idea that when we think about secret societies, that they're always sort of fictitious and and nebulous and, um, you know, and malevolent. That is a group uh, that is rarely included in our typical list of American secret societies, and one that probably had one of the most real-world impacts. Again, one of the things that was also really fascinating about that is that it was nowhere near as organized, I think, as either its proponents nor its detractors like to make it out to be. You know, the, the proponents wanted to sort of present this as this far-reaching thing to sort of prove that the public and, you know, everybody was behind them, whereas the, the slave voters in the South wanted to present it as this big far-reaching tentacles everywhere conspiracy that was doing great harm, when in fact, the logistics of being a secret society meant that there was limits and, and rather than being this super secretly, coherently organized thing, the Underground Railroad, in, in fact, was a lot more ad hoc, often provisional, people not necessarily communicating, you know, in sort of large groups for, for safety and security reasons, and, and, and much more spontaneous and decentralized than I think it, it gets portrayed. A couple of years back, I'm not sure how long it was now, you drove out to Joshua Tree and we talked about UFOs for your previous book, The Unidentified, pre-pandemic. Speaking of, of things that generate conspiracy theories, before before the big reset of our lives, before 
Every retail strip became a ghost town and people became permanent shut-ins. Do you remember that trip out here? Oh, I do. That was one of my one of my favorite interviews for that book. That was that was a really that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Did we hike? We hiked, I think. We hiked, yeah. Yeah, we hiked and uh, with your dog, as I remember. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was dusk. It was beautiful. It was, yeah, it was a great time. That book has, I can't remember now if the map is in the book or was with the promotional materials, but there was this great map of the United States with these map icons of monsters and flying saucers. And I remember looking at that and thinking that that would be the great American road trip. Oh, yeah. Well, and what I did, I, I have a friend uh, named Jason Brown who um, I learned, I got a lot of my thinking about UFOs originally through him. He, uh, he gives talks, he used to in pre-pandemic, he used to give talks in this, this basement in Chinatown in L.A. Um, and I, I couldn't, he doesn't write very much, so I couldn't really quote him. And so so what I did instead is I, I took him on a on a road trip, not not when I went out of Joshua Tree, but on a separate trip, we drove through Area 51 and out to Socorro, New Mexico, and uh, had a had a great time just going through the you know acid Southwest and hitting some of the sort of great landmarks of American military weirdness and, and UFO conspiracies. That was that was that was a great trip. Oh, that sounds so much fun. That's that's the only summer vacation I want to take. You've written books about the classic esoteric and paranormal subjects now, so it's clearly part of you. It's in your blood. So I always ask people, and I'm especially interested in asking you, what sort of personal experiences have you had? What's the weirdest thing, the thing you can't explain away? And as part of that, do you feel a need to explain away the bizarre, the paranormal? Are there things you accept as real, as real in the sense that it really happened to you, subjectively at least, however it might have occurred? I, one of the things I, I tried to do with the un- unidentified was really, as much as I was trying to explain why we believe things and maybe some of the reasons why we shouldn't, I, I, want, I wanted to keep an open mind. I really wanted that book to end on a note of saying there is still a possibility of the unknown and and there's still a possibility of wonder out there in the world. And I think by the end of that book, I, I'd run so many different UFO stories and cryptid stories to the ground. And there were a handful that I just I just couldn't come up with a, with a good explanation for. Uh, the the Socorro, New Mexico UFO sighting being one of them. The, uh, the incident in, in Lawndale, Illinois in 1977 with two birds that were described as closest to being a California condors picked up a small six-year-old child in a backyard in, in suburban Illinois. And the other, the other one is the, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876 when, when meat fell from the sky over Olympia Springs, Kentucky. And I, I went out to Lexington, I think it's Lexington, uh, to Transylvania University to see the last remaining chunk of, of Kentucky sky meat, uh, which is in a, in a jar in a, in a university out there. So there are things that I, I don't have scientific explanations for, things that I still find really sort of baffling and strange. How about I don't any, know. anything in your own life? 
Yeah, in in my own life, that's that's a little harder. I saw it as close to firsthand. I saw it secondhand, but but really struck me was when I got hired by Maxim Magazine to go to the Mustang Ranch, the brothel in in Reno, Nevada, and profile the owner. Uh, oh yeah, just, got, just outside of Sparks on the river. Yeah, yeah. So so the piece got killed. So the piece never ran. But while I was there. And the photographer was was setting up a shot with some of the women who worked there, which is sort of killing time and chatting with the madam. And that's she told me that the Mustang Ranch was haunted. And and I was you know I, at the time I was I was writing Ghostland book on ghosts and stuff. So of course I was totally fascinated. And she uh, she told me about one of the girls who had had this experience. And a couple of minutes later, this woman happened to walk by. So she grabbed her. She said, "Go go get your camera. Go go show them the the video." Right. So she comes back with this this video that she showed. So I, I obviously wasn't in the room, but I, I, I watched the video and basically this woman married her husband, lived in Southern California. So when she was working at the Mustang Ranch, she would send him videos. Thankfully, this one was uh, more or less PG-13 because that, that would have seemed a little too intimate. But she's... <laughs> She's, she's she's in this video and she's just kind of kind of dancing seductively for the camera, right? And there is uh, there's there's an orb, right? One of these glowing balls, and it's sort of floating around the screen. It's the kind of thing where I think if you were a very rational person, you would just say, "Oh, it's some sort of weird light thing, or it's a it's a glitch." You know, there are any number of ways you could describe it. But about forty seconds into into this video, which I'm watching, the the orb kind of scoots off off screen and you just kind of lose track of it and then a couple seconds later it it comes like roaring back into the frame and just at the moment when it 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 hits her temple in the video she falls over she like loses her balance and falls over and it's it's oh my really God. It, it was really like strange again like i don't i don't know what it was you know she she was like yeah i don't know like i just fell over and then when i looked at the video i saw this thing and obviously she didn't see it in the room when she was taking the video. So I, who knows? But it's a thing that I, I certainly watched that video. That's what I can tell you. Oh, that's wild. So everybody keep sending your private videos around. Maybe you'll uh, get knocked out by a ghost someday. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that, is the, uh, that is the takeaway. More... More spicy, spicy videos should be should be recorded and disseminated in case they have uh, paranormal activity on them. The new book is called "Under the Eye of Power." And tell me the subtitle again. It's so good. the The subtitle is uh, "How Fear of Secret Society Shapes American Democracy." It's out on July 11th. Go to colindickey.com for links to all of his books or get it at your local bookstore if you're lucky enough to still have one. Colin Dickey, thanks for joining us on Desert Oracle Radio. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. And across the great Mojave wilderness, you've been listening to Desert Oracle Radio with musical soundscapes by our own Red, Blue, Black, Silver. And I'm your host, Ken Lane. Most people 
people in our time listen to this show as a podcast, but we are on the air broadcasting on Friday nights at 10 p.m. KCDZ 107.7 on your FM dial in the Mojave High Desert. Our website is desertoracle.com where you can subscribe to our pocket-sized periodical about the mysterious American desert. Another heat wave on the way, but still cooler than usual in the Mojave Desert. What's the use in crying all the time about the climate if you don't enjoy the weather when it's pleasant? Good night from the Voice of the Desert.